Good morning. Good to see you all. Glad you're here. I almost had to make a grand entrance from the backstage because I left my Bible back there. I do not have it memorized in English. I have it in the Greek. All right. Um, today's going to be fun. All right. We're going to have a good time looking at some scripture that's just a piece of cake to preach. No problem at all. Uh, I almost had Ken come up and do it, but you know he really wanted to do it, but um, no, it's fun. It's going to be good. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. It is the authority in our lives. It is the source material from which our faith flows. You speak some places more clearly than others, but you speak, and you give us what we need so that we might live how you call us to live. Lord, you're using this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy so that he could help correct the conduct of that church that was struggling with so many distractions, so many obstacles. And Lord, I know that that's not the only church in history that's had difficulties. Every church has difficulties. And so, Lord, I just pray that today you'll use the words that I'm privileged to be able to share today to, Lord, strengthen the church, not just our church, but the church at large through the lives of the people who will be a part of those churches. It is our desire to be fruitful. Faithful, yes, but fruitful. And Lord, we need your help in removing the obstacles that prevent us from doing that. So Lord, help me speak, say no more than you want me to say, no less than you want me to say. And may, um, and may your, your, uh, your truth ring out with grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. If you haven't been with us lately, we are working through the letter called 1 Timothy. It's the first letter to Timothy from Paul. Timothy is doing something that Paul wants to do but can't do. The apostle Paul wants to be there in Ephesus so that he can help set things right in this church that he recently has spent as many as three years in, building up. And yet we have issues in the church, in that church. And so he sends Timothy on his behalf to set things in order, to get things back on track. There's division, there's distraction, and there's confusion. Okay, And so Paul writes this letter so that Timothy has a pretty detailed description of how to handle things that are going on. All right? Now, if you go back to chapter 1, you'll see that he's, first of all, he attacks the message of the church, and he says that the false teachers in the church are, are a problem. And he's, he's talking to men in particular, because men do the bulk of the teaching, and that day they did really almost all the teaching, if not all the teaching, and in the church at Ephesus. Now, when I say the church at Ephesus, don't picture one giant building, and everybody in Ephesus went to that one church. Picture a network of house churches throughout the city. And this was in a little podunk village. This is a quarter of a million people in the first century, second, third largest city in the empire of Rome. So we're talking about a lot of people. We're talking about a significant city, an influential city, and a city that had a lot of challenges that came with it that, that spilled into the church because we bring the culture from where we live into the life of the church. And uh, that's why we need God's word to help us see when we are off track. And so he, in chapter one, he, he deals with the false teachings. In chapter 2, 
he starts talking about worship, order and worship. How do we worship orderly? How do we worship in a way with, that has integrity? And then he, he starts getting into the details. Today, um, today we're going to talk specifically about distract. Uh, I'm sorry, divisive men distracting women, and the distinction in the roles of men and women as it relates to leadership in the church. Those are the three things we'll tackle. No big deal. Just take us a couple minutes. Don't worry about it. All right. Um, one key verse in last week's passage I want to point out, because this is really the reason Paul is making such a big deal about this, this fruitfulness piece. I'm just going to start reading in verse 1 of chapter 2, and I'm just going to read about three or four verses here. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Don't miss that, okay? That's, his, he, that's the goal, okay? That when we follow the, when we pray and follow the gospel, it's going to lead us in all godliness and holiness, Okay? And then he says this, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. He wants salvation to just sweep over the planet. He wants people to know Christ. Okay? And that's really the heart behind the whole letter from Paul to Timothy is I want that to continue or start again in the church at Ephesus. And so I need you to go be a leader amongst leaders and get the church back on track. And, and this is, this is the, the situation of the early church. I mean, we're talking about the early 60s, A.D. 60, and you know Christ resurrected in the early 30s. So about 30 years, the church is only about 30 years old. So they're, and they don't have a written down New Testament, okay? They have the Old Testament scriptures, which are mostly in their head because nobody has a, nobody's walking around with a copy of the Old Testament. And so their scriptures are very much word of mouth in memory. And then the New Testament is being written over the, has started being written down and is going to continue to be written down up through the 90s. All right? So now, starting in verse 8, Paul's going to begin right off the bat. Now, he's been already dealing with the men. He's kind of come back to the men again. And in verse 8, he's going to say to the men this. Therefore, in light of that, what I just talked about, that I want all men to be saved, all people to be saved, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without without um without anger or disputing, okay? So one of the ways you know what a church is dealing with is by looking at what Paul addresses in his letter. If he brings it up, it's an issue. That's why he brought it up, because he's trying to correct it. That's how we know. You know, like, how do these scholars know this is how they know? They read the text over and over and over, and they study in detail, and they pick apart. Well, if he's writing this, that must mean, by implication, this has been happening in the church, and so that's how we know that a lot of these letters are not just generic letters written to the church. They're specific. They're written to specific people in a specific time in history, in a specific city, for a specific reason. Okay? And we can't take what they wrote and pull it out into our culture and try to make it mean something it didn't mean then. So there's consistency. It's kind of a good check for us. When you're interpreting Scripture, two principles. One is the theological principle. God wrote it all. 
All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So all scripture is God-breathed. And, and, and it's, God's not going to contradict himself. So he's not going to say something in Habakkuk that's going to give us a problem in 1 Peter. Okay, It's all going to work. Now, it might be apparent contradictions, but when we study and we work through it, we realize, okay, I see how it fits, and we can trust that. So that's the theological, theological conviction we come to when we're interpreting scripture. The second one is that it is a historical document written in history at a certain time and a place, and therefore we have to take into account what was happening, the history, and what the culture was like and where it is, geographically, ethnically, etc. Okay? This is why we study um, historical documents so that we might better understand what was happening in those days, so that we can understand what they were saying to each other, and then comes the, the application piece, right? And this is where we look at the scripture and we go, okay, so how do I, how do I know what to do with this? Okay? And, and we, we ask ourselves that question and we go, okay, so what did it mean to them then? Okay? What parts of what was said are principles, truths that are timeless? And we lift the timeless truths and principles out and we can drop them into our day and apply the scripture using those principles. If it's cultural, then we say it's cultural, that was for then, that was a unique situation, that doesn't necessarily apply to us today. It might, and it might not. And so knowing those things helps us know when to make a big deal about something that Paul says and how not to make a big deal about something that Paul says. And what we tend to do is one of two extremes. One extreme is we go, it's all cultural, it's all, you know, it's all, um, it's all written for back then, and so we can kind of pick and choose what we like and just apply that, and, and we don't really have to be consistent other than it's all just, you know, guideline stuff. That's one, and that's not taking the, ser the scripture seriously. All right, the other is we can say it's all literal, and, and even when it's not intended to be literal. It's all for us today, even if it's not all intended for us today. And that can be an extreme that's unhealthy. So we start applying things like people start worrying about what kind of headdress they're wearing to church because, you know, it says, you know, where women wear, cover their heads and men don't or, or vice versa. And these kinds of things are said. And, and now all of a sudden we're starting to try to obey something that was never intended for anyone beyond the people it was written for in that immediate time. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11 is what I'm referring to there, which is relevant to today's passage, but we won't be able to go there. Now, and so what I want you to see is in these three obstacles that I'm going to point out, verse 8, then 9 and 10, and then 11 and through 14, these are all going to have principles, and they're all going to have a cultural application that is not particularly relevant to us today. Okay, so I just kind of want to give you that as some background. Let's work through it. So I said that verse, the first obstacle is the device of men. So here's what they were doing or not doing. So the men, the men were arguing, okay? And, and this, these men could have been elders. They might not have been. We don't know for sure. We don't have names. But they are, they are lifting up holy hands, praying in church. At the same time, they're having disagreements and arguments with each other when they're not there, or maybe they're doing it before the service and after the service. I don't know. I don't know exactly how it's planned. We don't get all the detail, but there's an issue here. There's anger in their heart. Their, their hearts aren't right before God, and their, act, and their actions, outward actions with each other are also are clearly not good. And so Paul's saying, look, you want to have a fruitful church, you've got to pray, but you can't just pretend, okay? 
There's a good reason to raise your hands when you pray or sing. There's good reasons for this. It's, if nothing else, it reminds me when my hands are open like this that I'm supposed to be surrendering everything to God and that when I pray and when I worship that it's all his. And it's a great way for me to, it's a great posture to pray. But is this passage telling me I must if, or just the guys that we're supposed to do this? No, I think it's a cultural application of something that is optional for us. But the principles here are not optional, right? Pray with holy hands. That implies that my heart is right with God, pure before God. Is your heart pure before God? I know there have been times when I've worshiped in a service and my heart's not been right. I know that. And I know what that feels like. And I know that I'm not the only one, okay? Now, Part of my process of digging out of that hole is worshiping when I don't feel like it or worshiping it when I'm not genuinely there in the moment. And I might even try to compensate by raising my hands on that particular day. You know, you just never know what goes through the, you know, the, the evil that runs through our hearts at times. But God wants a pure heart from us so that, he will, so that we will pray prayers that are consistent with his heart and pray prayers that he will hear. So he wants us to be right with him, at peace with him. But he also wants us to be at peace with each other. And if we're arguing and quarreling about things and we're not resolving things, we have unresolved conflict, that's not a good place either. In fact, I don't think you can say you're at peace with God if you're not at peace with, with everyone else. Now, when I say that, I recognize that there are times when you and I are going to not be at peace with somebody and there's nothing we can do about it. Okay, there are things that are beyond our control. I can't control how someone responds to me. I can control how I respond to them, and I can control what I'm willing to take responsibility for and own. So when there's, whenever there's conflict in a relationship, right, there's usually blame on both sides, okay? And it's rarely 50-50. It's, you know, usually somebody has the greater amount. And so the person with the lesser amount tends to get a little self-righteous and go, well, if they'll apologize, I'll apologize. Instead of, no, I'm responsible for my 5%. I'm going to own it. And I'm going to take responsibility and I'm going to apologize. And I'm not going to make up one of these, these false apologies where if you're offended, I'm sorry. No, apologize for what you think you did. It was wrong. All right, that's your best chance for reconciliation. If they don't respond in kind or if their reconciliation isn't completed by them at that moment, you've tried, you've done what you can do, okay? You can continue to pray and you never know. They, got, they can see the light later. Just trust God with that. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 5, 23 and 4, when he says, if you find yourself at the, at the I don't know if it was altar or at, in the temple or in the synagogue with an offering, and yet your brother has something against you, all right, put it down, go get right with them, and then come back and give your offering. He didn't say if you have something with them, an issue with them. He said if they have an issue with you. That sounds like their problem, doesn't it? That's what I want to say. Jesus, that's them. That's not me. I don't have a problem with them. Yeah, but they have a problem with you, and you need to try. You need to try, okay? And sometimes we have, and you know, God convicts us and he wants us to go back again. And that's, you know, you have to work that out. But he, he's saying, don't pretend everything's okay and, and, and worship me when things aren't okay. Divisiveness and quarreling and a, and a lack of a pure heart 
wrecks the fruitfulness of a church, okay? It wrecks the fruitfulness of a church. It wrecks the fruitfulness of your family, your extended family, and it, and it just creates all kinds of angst in your own heart, okay? All of these things that we're going to deal with, these three obstacles, they're all applicable to churches, families, and our individual walk, okay? Now, the second one is, we have, so we have divisive men, and now we go to distracting women. Here's how he says it. Verse 9, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothing, clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Again, here's the principle. Um, we see that what God wants them to do is adore him through their good deeds, not adorn themselves to be noticed. Okay. So are we not supposed to wear jewelry? Are we not supposed to put on makeup and do our hair? Well, if you say correct to those things, and you also have to say, and you can't wear clothing because it's right there, okay? I don't think we mean that, right? Because that's a cultural piece of this, okay? He's saying there's nothing wrong with wearing jewelry and makeup and nice dress and what, or however you want to you know, outfit and hair and done nicely, okay? But these women weren't doing that just modestly. They were wearing extremely expensive clothing. You know, their Tommy Hilfinger logo was like big, right? And, and it didn't just say Tommy Hilfiger. It was, and purchased at a certain store, not at the outlet, because that doesn't count somehow. I don't understand. But anyway, they're wearing really expensive clothing. They're probably wearing, in some cases, immodest clothing. So high slit, low cut, tight fit. That's how we would say it. I don't know how they did it. Their hair was done up, and it was very, um, it was very important in Roman and Greek and Roman society to have lots of gems, precious stones, and precious metals woven in because that's money. That says money and influence, right? And so, what they were trying to do was show up and and, and present themselves in such a way that they would be clearly noticed. Okay. Now, what are they doing? They're literally robbing God of the affections and attentions of the people that have come to worship Him. They're making it about themselves, okay? Again, that's the principles. Are we doing that? When you prepare for Sunday, I'll just say it this way and move on. When you're preparing to come on Sunday morning, do you spend more time getting ready physically or spiritually? Yeah, I know how that feels. Okay, so let's keep going. Then here comes the fun one. A woman should learn, this is in verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Okay? We have principles and we have culture here as well. Same thing. This is the third distraction. The distinction between the roles of men and women. Okay? This is especially a hot topic in our culture as we have the gender conversation that continues to, to take um, crazy turns. I just cannot follow where we have gotten. Okay? Um, so I'm, gonna t I'm teaching this passage from the position. Let me just kind of let you know where we're coming from, and then I'll explain why he said what he said and why it matters. Our church, um, from the beginning, has been elder-led. It took them the first year to figure out who the elders were going to be, but that's how they done it. They did it. In the Bible, elder is the same word. Or it's interchangeable with pastor, 
bishop, overseer, shepherd. All those words mean the same thing. They mean the person or persons, the, the qualified men who lead the flock of that church, okay? And, and, I, and 1 Timothy 3, which we'll start next week, talks about the elder must be the husband of one wife. Male, qualified male plurality of elders is how the early church was led, okay? So then the question becomes, right, so is that a cultural thing and just for then, or is that a principled thing? And we, our conviction has been and continues to be that it is a principled decision, and the reason is because of what he uses to justify it. He goes to Adam and Eve before the, before the fall, which means before sin entered the world. And that makes it a pretty striking argument, okay? And so let's walk through it. Let me show you what I mean. All right, so a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. The, the context for this is leadership, leadership at home, leadership in the church, okay? It doesn't mean, even though the words can mean silence, it doesn't mean that women can't speak in the church. It doesn't mean that women can't prophesy, pray in the church. We have examples of them doing that, and we have teaching in 1 Corinthians 11, one place that says that, 1 Corinthians 14, where that's already happening in the first century. Okay? So that's, but that's just in general in worship. But when it comes to teaching and having authority, this is how, this is the issue, right? The question is, how do you exercise authority in a church? And it's primarily through the teaching, okay? It wasn't planned. It was just kind of our routine. Pat came up here, and she taught out of Isaiah, didn't she? She taught. She did it well. And she did it under the authority of the elders. If she had said something wrong, I was prepared. I ran through my mind like it never happens, but it ran through my mind. If she says something that she shouldn't have said, then I'll have to get up there, and, and it'll be awkward, and I'll have to address that lovingly, humbly, because we don't always get this right. And oh, by the way, we might not have it right. Okay? We are not leading this. We lead this with confidence, but we're not leading this as if we are sure that we've got it all figured out, because we don't. Okay? But we do think that this is the most straightforward teaching, and we do think it's principled and not just cultural. Yes, there were issues there that were cultural. The ladies... Some ladies in the church were probably doing a combination of the, the distracting behavior and, and speaking about leadership or as a leader in the church as if they were. Now, to their, in their defense, I would say this. Christianity, more than any other movement in the history of, of religion, really was elevating women and freeing women to be all that God created them to be, okay? We can go back to, but this has been happening, this, the foundation has been here since the beginning. If you go to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 7, we see that men and women are created in the image of God, making us equal in value, okay? When you study chapter 2 of Genesis, we see that Adam was created first, and then Eve was created, and he gives us the reasons. And in summary, Eve was created after Adam, Eve was created from Adam, and Eve was created for Adam. And all of those things are good in God's eyes. Even though our, 
American ears hear that, and there's this cringe factor that comes with it because of our culture. Like a goldfish doesn't know about the water that it swims in. It just, it's just there. We have cultural ears and mindsets and thinkings and philosophies that we do life in that we don't even think about. It's just what we've always known. And so we don't really, we're not always self-aware about it. And that's part of why we push back on things like this, okay? And the temptation in the church is to go with the flow. Just like the temptation for you and me and out there in the real world is to go with the flow about the way we do our jobs and the way we interact with our neighbors and so forth. But, but Christ called us to something higher. He called us to something better. And that means that we're going to, we're going to be going against the flow on some things. So this is, I'm talking about the leadership of the church in the sense of the, the pastors, elders, etc. okay? It's not talking here about deacons. It's not talking here about any other leadership position in the church, okay? It's talking about there's a need for a few qualified men to take on this role, okay? If you go to 1 Corinthians 11, you see that the principles laid out where it says God is the head of Christ, Okay? God and Christ, God the Father, God the Son, equal, okay, but different roles. God the Father didn't die on the cross. He sent Jesus to die on the cross, okay? Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. I'm not writing this, okay? I get the cringe factor, but I got to believe that if God wrote it that way, and it's principled that I got to believe it's for our good, it's for the good of the church, and that it is what he would consider the way to do it. I could be wrong, okay? But this is where we are. And so um, it says that, so that tells us that women and men created equal, but complementary, okay? We get, the, we get this visual every time you think about men and women and the differences anatomically. Okay? And I know our culture's trying to make men have babies. I know it. We're trying. Boy, they've got the false womb. They're working on the fake womb that you can insert into the man's belly. You know this? It's crazy. It's crazy. But you're never going to change the beauty of what God created. God created men and He created women, and He created them both beautifully different. And there's no reason to be ashamed for being either one of those because of who you are, because of your impart your identity of being male or female, okay? It's more than biology, but it is biology. It's more than anatomy, but it includes anatomy. It includes the things about the human heart and mind that we can just barely understand, and there are differences and nuances and all of those things, which is what makes it so interesting to be married, does it not, right? And, and to interact with brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and children of both gender. You know what I'm saying? It, God created the best possible combination. He could have created Eve and Adam. He could have created Eve first, and we would say, you know, about Eve and Adam, right? That doesn't sound right, does it? Why? Because it, Adam was created first, and we say Adam and Eve. He could have created Adam and Steve, right? But he didn't, because why? Because when he looked at Adam and he said, he needs help, <laughs> paraphrase, but that's basically what God said. He needs help. And so he had him look through all the animal kingdom. He named all the animals looking for a suitable helper, was the quote. None found, not even dogs. I know, it's crazy. So God puts Adam to sleep. 
technically scripture never says he woke up, but we'll go with, we'll just assume he did. He created Adam and he put him, he had him go to sleep. And then he created Eve, not from the mud like he created Adam, but from man. Isn't that interesting that he did it differently on purpose? And he creates Adam, uh, creates Eve from Adam. Apparently he does wake up because he says some pretty amazing things about her because he's very impressed with what God has done. And, and so, and he says, the reason scripture says is because it was not good that Adam was alone. And when he created Eve, it was very good because Adam needed help. Guys, we just need to admit it, all right? We need help, even if it's directions, okay? And God had created, and Adam and Eve didn't have issues with the way God did it until after the fall. And God told Eve in the list of curses that followed the first sin, You're gonna, he's going to rule over you. And you're going to have issues with that. Welcome to Marriage Counseling 101. Right? It happens. It happens. Okay? Now, this is why it's such a big deal. The basic institution to society is the family. Okay? God created marriage. The first family, Adam and Eve. One woman, one man, as long as we both shall live. That's the ideal. That's what he created. That's the way it sh should go, ideally. Okay? God's grace covers a multitude of left turns, we'll call them, okay? Um, and he created them equal and beautiful and amazing and complementary so that working together, we could accomplish what God called humanity to accomplish, which is what? Be fruitful and multiply and rule over the planet, okay? That's our job, okay? And the be fruitful and multiply wasn't just physical, I think ultimately he's pointing to making disciples. Okay? Make disciples who make disciples. Okay? It doesn't mean that you're less complete or less whole if you're not married. Okay? In fact, Paul's talked about, I wish everyone were like I am, and he was single. Because he knew that your heart didn't have to compete. You didn't have that competition with God for the surrender of your heart, like you do when you have a spouse that you really care about. Okay? So... Um, God is, is not saying that you have to be married to be complete. Absolutely not true, okay? It helps, though. And for most of us, we need that help, okay? There are a few that, that are able to be all that God created them to be without that, for whatever reasons, and God has his reasons, okay? So this is why, this is his um, argument for why Brass tacks, right? Okay, so what does this mean? This is why he says, I want a plurality of qualified men to lead the church, a, plur a group, a team, okay? At our church, we have, right now, we have five elders, okay? Two are paid full-time, and three are, have real jobs, okay? I'll say it that way, okay? And together, we lead to the best of our ability under the authority given to us by the congregation of the church. Because we're non-denominational. We don't have a denomination that has authority over us. We're autonomous. And so we are answerable to God and we're answerable to those who empowered us, okay? Which is why you can call for a vote for new elders with a simple majority anytime. You have that power, you have that authority, and that's a check and balance, okay? 
That's the way we see, that's the way we read scripture. And while it doesn't give us a lot of detail about how to run church, that's a big piece that it does give us specifics on. Plurality of elders, that is multiple, not one super elder or any of that, okay? Working together as equal voices at the table, whether paid or not, whether seminary degree or not. Those things are not in the Bible. No seminary in the Bible, okay? And, but now they are, there are, there are, pastors and elders that are paid and those that aren't in the Bible. So there's both, and you can find that. And we'll see that later in 1 Timothy. Okay. All right. So that's, that's how we see it. That's how we understand it, and that's how we operate right now. Okay. Again, we could be wrong. After preparing for this again, I feel even better about where we are. And I don't think we're wrong. But this is why we want to let you know that either that the conversation is an ongoing conversation. So if you are struggling with this particular issue, okay, that doesn't mean you can't be here. doesn't mean that you're not welcome here, okay? And there's a whole host of issues that that's true about, right? We don't all agree on a lot of different things, and that's okay. Do we agree on Jesus is the way and the truth and the life? Do we agree that he, that grace and, uh, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone? Yes, those big, big pieces, those basic pieces of what does it mean to follow Christ, and to be a follower, to be a Christian, we need to agree on those. But most of the things that we're tempted to disagree on are not those big pieces. But they can become stumbling blocks and obstacles to the fruitfulness of a church. Okay? We want to be a church that makes disciples by making disciples. That's how we love God and love people. That's the best way to do it. And if we let divisive people or distracting people get in the way, or if we let the roles of men and women get confused because of what the culture is pushing us to do, then we will cease to be the fruitful church that God has called us to be. And then there's this last verse. But women will be saved through childbearing, and if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety, if they continue with faith, love, holiness with propriety. Okay? No one knows what this verse means, okay? Let me, just, let me just say that, all right? I've done a little bit of research. Nobody knows what this verse means, okay? Some think it might mean that Jesus comes through Eve, and that's prophesied in Genesis 3.15, so that's true whether that's what this verse means or not. Also, it maybe indicates that when a woman is nurturing her children to adulthood, that, and she does so with faith, love, and holiness, and propriety, that she'll be blessed and saved or sanctified through. I think she is sanctified. Um, I don't know that that's what it means. It's true. Okay. I, I, here's what I know. If men and women live out the roles, the God-given roles that he has given us with integrity, with faith, love, and holiness, then God is going to make us fruitful. He's going to sanctify us. And we're not saved by the birth of a child. We're saved by the death of Jesus Christ. Okay, and that's why we do the Lord's Supper every week to remember that. Okay, so I, I would love to hear your theories on verse 15. Okay, when I say love to hear it, not really, but that's fine. If you, if you want to share them with me, I am all willing to have those conversations with you. But here's the thing. I'm going to major on the things that are clear in Scripture because they're clear in Scripture. Some of you may even, we may not even agree. This isn't super clear sometimes. Okay, and we're going to do the best we can with a humble heart so that we might get this. We want to get right, and we want to move towards being more right 
from where we are now, okay? I, I welcome your, your feedback, your questions. Please don't hesitate to do that. If that's something that, if you've got specific questions, I can go further. I could have said another hour on this topic. You don't want to hear another hour on this topic from me. I don't want to say another hour on this topic right now, okay? But it's important. Because the, the sanctity of, our, of fruitfulness in the church is important. And that's not just about being a church. It's about you and your family. And, and mom and dad, husband and wife, figuring this out equals different roles, equal in value, okay? Paul says to wives in Ephesians 5, submit to your husbands. But you know what the verse says right before that? Submit to one another. Now that's confusing unless you realize there's nuance. We do submit to one another. Because why? Because we're all made in the image of God. That means we come at our disagreements with humility and grace. And yet we recognize that God set up things the way he did on purpose, not by accident, and it's not random. God knows what he's doing, even when we don't always know what he's doing, okay? All right, let's pray. Lord, um, I thank you that you give us your word and that you give us brains to think and you call us to humility to understand. I thank you for the, the thousands of years of Christian um, biblical tradition and, and, and um, writings that help us wrestle with the possible understandings and interpretations of so many things. But at the end of the day, Lord, you give us your word and you give us your spirit who promises to teach us. And so, Lord, I just thank you that it's as simple as trusting and following you and your word to the best of our ability with humility and grace. And Lord, that your grace covers it when we don't get it right. I pray that we would take that to heart in whatever area of life you're convicting us over today. It could be about our unwillingness to reconcile with somebody, our arguing with somebody, our, our lack of peace with one another. Lord, I pray that we would reconcile to the extent that it depends on us, to be at peace to the extent that it depends on us with all people. It could be that we're making way much too much about ourselves, that we are, um, drawing, we're working really hard to draw attention to ourselves when in fact you want us to draw attention to you. Find us repenting. And Lord, I pray that you would, um, maybe we're struggling with the whole gender thing. Our culture is, is raging over this issue. Lord, you love women just as much as you love men. And you clearly love men because you gave them women to help them so that together they can build your kingdom the way you want it built, with beauty and grace, with the wisdom that both bring to the table. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'll help us embrace your ways and trust and follow you in that. In Jesus' name, amen.